If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this History Extra Plus podcast, Pearl Harbor, the story of the surprise attack. This is episode three, Countdown to the Raid. In the years leading up to 1941, the relationship between the US and Japan had disintegrated dramatically. But how did the Japanese move from a general animosity towards the US towards planning a direct strike against them at Pearl Harbor? I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and in this five-part series on the attack on Pearl Harbor, I'm taking a look back at this pivotal moment in global history, speaking to expert historians about the long historical roots underlying US-Japanese hostilities, charting exactly how the attack unfolded, and exploring its far-reaching consequences. In this episode, we'll be looking at the immediate run-up to the attack exploring how inch-perfect Japanese planning and complacent oversights by American military figures combined to leave Pearl Harbor Naval Base a sitting duck for Japanese bombers. We'll be asking why the Japanese chose Pearl Harbor as a target, how much inkling the US had that they should expect an attack, and whether there were any warning signs that they missed. And to help answer these questions, I was joined by Steve Twomey, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and the author of Countdown to Pearl Harbor, 12 Days to the Attack. I think the thing that always surprises me the most about Pearl Harbor, and so I bought a book about Pearl Harbor, which I had not read before. And when I got to the part where it said that 10 days before the attack, this message had arrived, this warning message, I almost fell out of my chair. What? Uh, This was a surprise. You mean they were warned about it? And I think that's the facet of the attack that most people don't appreciate is just how tense the atmosphere was, how much everyone knew a war was about to break out, how the military was, in a sense, warned. But before we go into more depth on some of those warning signs and whether the US should have spotted them, let's just rewind a bit. I asked Steve to start us off by explaining how, after years of animosity with the US, the idea of an attack on Pearl Harbor first arose among Japanese decision-makers. The Japanese, as you may know from your previous episodes, were well embarked on a campaign to become the, uh, the masters of East Asia. 
And the only power in the Pacific that could hamper them in any way was the United States, specifically the United States Pacific Fleet. They were the only substantial threat to uh, the plans the Japanese had. And so when Japan resolved that it was going to go to war on a large scale in the South Pacific, the leader of the Japanese Navy at the time, uh, an Admiral Yamamoto, argued that we cannot embark on invading Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and do nothing about the only power that could stop us. And that power was the Pacific Fleet. And the majority of this Pacific Fleet had recently found a new home. The United States Navy was uh, partitioned in two. There was an Atlantic fleet and a Pacific fleet. And the Pacific fleet had been growing smaller, actually, because ships were being uh, relocated to the Atlantic as part of Franklin Roosevelt's effort to keep Britain afloat. So the Pacific fleet was actually smaller than it used to be. But Roosevelt had ordered it moved from its normal bases, which were on the west coast of the United States, principally Los Angeles and the the port of Long Beach and the port of San Diego in California, and also in Seattle in the state of Washington, farther up the, the coast. He had ordered the Pacific Fleet in 1940 to relocate temporarily, and it became almost permanently, to Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is a a geologic miracle, actually. It is a perfect place to house ships because it is entirely landlocked, except for a narrow channel from the harbor to the Pacific. It's on the island of Oahu, which is the most populated island then and now of uh, the Hawaiian Islands. It's about 12 miles west of the city of Honolulu. And uh, the fleet was based there in this very natural harbor, deep enough for big ships, uh, protected from the wind. Uh, And that's where the Pacific Fleet was, if you will, hanging out in 1940 and 1941. And Roosevelt had ordered it there specifically as a kind of loaded gun pointed at the Japanese, basically saying in so many words, don't do anything out there because we're closer to you now and we will do something about it. And so in its most basic military terms, the need was to strike an enemy that could strike you. And that plan arose in Japan as a counterpart to its larger plans to begin invading these other places. And that's something that's really important to remember when we're thinking about the strategy behind Pearl Harbor, that this raid was just one manoeuvre in a much larger Japanese offensive. The attack on Pearl Harbor was not the main point of December 7th. There were far bigger plans also being executed at the same time. The attack on Pearl Harbor was almost tangential to their their plans at that time. Can you just give us a sense of what was going to be happening elsewhere? Its plan in those first days of December was to attack Malaysia, to attack the Philippines, which, by the way, guaranteed that the United States would be in the war. Even if they hadn't attacked Pearl Harbor, They were going to attack the Philippines, which was an American colony, and that would have provoked the war. Uh, They were going after the East Indies. All of these were sources of minerals, rubber, tin, nickel, oil that Japan needed and wished to uh, steal. And so its big operation was in that part of the world, tens of thousands of soldiers, hundreds of ships, 
much bigger plan than the Pearl Harbor aspect of it. So the idea was that by crippling America's Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, the Japanese would preemptively eliminate any resistance that might hamper their expansion across East Asia. But any way you look at it, this was a risky move. A risk that even some of Japan's most influential decision makers feared was simply too great. Yamamoto, even though he had supported the idea of attacking the uh, Pacific Fleet, didn't really wish to do that. He thought going to war with the United States was a death sentence. He knew, and they all knew in Japan, that in terms of strict industrial output, the United States had so many more resources than Japan. Japan had no natural resources to fuel its ships, no coal, no oil. And the United States had an unlimited supply of those things, as well as other things you need to keep a military in the field. Yamamoto, who had lived in the United States, he had been based here, I think it was twice, as military attaché. And so he knew the United States and he had traveled the country and knew that it was vastly bigger than Japan and had incredible industrial output. And he knew this was a, a, a bad move. But if his leaders were going to insist on going to war with the United States, he wanted them to attack Pearl Harbor first in, in kind of a, a strange hope that if we do this, maybe things will work out. Maybe the United States will be so overwhelmed by uh, our daring and our boldness that they'll sue for peace and we'll have a settlement in the Pacific. Once he realized that this had, this was the collective mindset of the uh, hierarchy in the uh, military and also that the emperor had signed on, he was dedicated to making the best of a bad situation. And the decision by Japan to go to war was an irrational one. I mean, there was no hope they could win this war. They were kind of hoping for a miracle. And to a certain extent, it was a uh, case of national pride tinged with insanity. They were not going to allow the United States to deter them from their goal of being the masters of East Asia. So no one resigned over their objections to uh, this decision. But there was a lot of debate and also a lot of debate about how big the force that was going to go to Hawaii should be. He wanted to make sure that this was a death blow to the extent that they could deliver it. And uh, for every ship he wanted to go to Hawaii was one that could not be used in the larger scheme. So there were debates about that. And he eventually prevailed and got what he considered a sufficient number of ships to go to Hawaii. But this was this was a debate, in, but not really. While we're talking about the strategic planning of Japanese decision makers... It's worth just widening out the frame a bit. How did Yamamoto and other leaders get to the point where they felt that an attack on America was inevitable? Why had all attempts to resolve things via diplomacy and negotiation reached a dead end by 1941? The negotiations were very strange in that the United States was not asking for anything. It wasn't seeking something from Japan. It wasn't seeking resources. It wasn't seeking land. So when you have a negotiation in which one side is simply saying, stop doing what you're doing, and the other side can make no demand of the United States, you're bound to have a fruitless negotiation. The United States simply wanted Japan to stop using violence to get what it wanted. After the fall of France in 1940, the Japanese had 
pretty much put a gun to the head of the remnants of the French government, then run by the Vichy government, and said, we want to land some of our troops in French Indochina. And the French really didn't have a choice. They were a weakened, conquered power. So they seized parts of Indochina. And the United States kept saying, stop doing that. If you need things, go about it in a nonviolent way. Uh, If you need oil, let's talk about it. If you need other resources, but don't start invading places. So the U.S. position was simply stop. Just don't do what you're doing. Behave. And Japan had no similar wishes for the United States. So these were doomed negotiations. A key moment in the collapse of negotiations was the so-called Hull Note of the 26th of November. Issued by the U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hull, this was the final proposal that the U.S. delivered to Japan, demanding that they withdraw their forces from China and Indochina. The Hull Note was simply kind of a marker the United States put down that said, enough, you need to do these 10 things because we got nothing to talk about uh, other than that. You have to be willing to work civilly with other nations to get what you want. In Japan, that was considered an ultimatum and they reacted badly to it, but they were going to attack anyway. Their ships were in motion before Hull sent his note and there was probably little that could have stopped them at that point. Once the decision was made and the plans were put together for an attack on Pearl Harbor, what exactly did that plan look like? I asked Steve to tell us more. You mentioned there that they essentially wanted to deliver a a death blow, but was the strategy literally just destroy as many ships in the harbour as possible, and that's the priority? Or were there specific ships that they wanted to target more than others, for example? The idea was, uh, I think we have to put ourselves back into the naval mindset of the era. The most famous type of ship at that time was the battleship, these immense gun platforms that could fire shells at enormous distances and that were the heart of naval combat for hundreds of years, you know, back through Trafalgar and even farther, where the ships of two sides lined up and just fired at each other and whoever hit the most won. And so Japan's top priority was to sink as many American battleships as it could. In the Pacific Fleet at the time, there were eight based at Pearl Harbor. They were all old, but still very formidable. So sinking as many of those as possible was one of the priorities. Yamamoto also recognized that there was a new player on the scene in the form of the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier had not existed essentially, uh, during the First World War. Powered, sustained flight had only been possible since 1903. And yet Yamamoto, and particularly one of his subordinates, a man by the name of Genda, understood that this was a revolutionary vehicle because you could sink or attack the enemy from the air from hundreds of miles away rather than having to sail close enough to see him. And so they also wished to destroy American aircraft carriers, of which there were three at the time in the Pacific. So the idea was to go after what were called capital ships. Capital ships were the backbone of any Navy. Obviously, whatever else they could find in the harbor, they would attack. uh, And they did on the day in question. But it wasn't quite as simple as turning up at Pearl Harbor to find the entire Pacific fleet waiting there. 
the big problem they had, of course, was this is the era before spy satellites. This is the era before listening devices. Japan had no way of knowing how many ships or what ships were going to be at Pearl Harbor when they arrived overhead. They hoped that a lot of ships would be there, but you couldn't know it until you you arrived. And so there was a tremendous gamble in that sense, because what if they showed up and flew over Pearl Harbor and whoops, there are no ships there? Then the question immediately becomes, where are those ships? We've announced ourselves by appearing overhead. They know we're here. We don't know where they are. And so the Japanese ran a great risk of having their secret plan turned into a great disaster. So there was a great gamble there. And a key part of pulling off this great gamble was timing. The Japanese very intentionally planned the attack to take place at dawn on a Sunday. Why? Sunday was clearly still in a peacetime Navy, the day of leisure. People would be going to church. People would be with their families. The ships that were there would have granted leave to their crews to go into Honolulu and hit the bars, which people did. There were parties that night in uh, Honolulu, dances. And so Sunday morning was the most peaceful time of day. And it made great sense to try to attack on a Sunday It also made great sense to attack at dawn as opposed to late in the afternoon. Uh, The reason was that the ships of the Japanese fleet could get as close to Hawaiian darkness as they could without being seen and launch their planes in darkness to arrive over the harbor right at dawn. In other words, it was another aspect of executing a surprise. So dawn on a Sunday Everyone kind of knew that, that it was the, if you're going to do this, even on the American side, if you're going to do this, that's a good time to do it. Steve mentioned there that by launching the attack at dawn, Yamamoto's fleet could get as close to Pearl Harbor as possible in cover of darkness. But it's worth pointing out here that the journey from Japan to Hawaii did not just take one night, but several days. How did the Japanese fleet make this mammoth journey across the Pacific without detection? Yamamoto knew that the key to this plan was surprise, that they had to keep secret that they were coming. It takes about 12 days to sail from Japan to Hawaii. So they had to maintain the secret at sea. Now, And they couldn't just leave from the normal ports of Japan because their departure would be seen. And you have to remember, the United States was still at peace with Japan, so that there were Americans running around Japan, not just at the embassy in Tokyo, but business people and uh, military attaches. And the departure of a fleet would be seen and observed, and it might work its way back to the United States. So they had to depart surreptitiously, And they did this by gradually a ship here, two ships there, leaving their home ports and going to one of the most remote corners of the empire, to islands far off the north coast of Japan, many of them today occupied by Russia as a result of the war. But they assembled at a place called Hitakapu Bay, completely deserted, almost no one living there. It was uh, November. It was cold. It was snowing. You would never take a vacation to these places. They're pretty desolate. And there in that bay, the 30-some ships of the attack force assembled and prepared. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match 
with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And Japanese efforts to cover the tracks of this departing fleet were meticulous. They made sure that no one on the island could radio the arrival of this fleet. They severed all the telegraph lines and the, and the telephone lines, and they uh, prohibited the dumping of garbage over the side of the ships so that no fisherman or American submarine could pick up the garbage and, and figure out that someone had been there. And they principally were going to engage in strict radio silence. They would not talk to each other by radio nor would they talk to the uh, home bases uh, back in uh, Japan. They sailed in silence, and the only way they communicated between themselves was with uh, signal lights and semaphores. They didn't use the radio. They could listen, and they were listening, to messages coming from Tokyo that updated them on the status of the negotiations. I mean, there was always a possibility that they would get a last-minute message and the fleet would turn back. The crew uh, of these ships, I think it may have been 12,000 people on these 30-some ships, they weren't told where they were going until they got to that remote bay so that there was no possibility they would tell wives and girlfriends. and, And some of them, when they heard, oh, you're going to Hawaii and you're going to attack the United States... They thought, well, that's it. Our lives are over. We will never return from this. And we'll all get medals as heroes, but we won't be there to pick them up personally. There really was a sense that this was a suicide mission because at any moment they could be spotted out there on the ocean by commercial ships carrying cargo back and forth. Again, it's important to remember there was no war in that part of the Pacific at that point or really any part of the Pacific. So commercial ships would still be out there. They might be spotted by an American submarine. And principally, they assumed, and so did much of the United States, that the Pacific Fleet was conducting long-range aerial reconnaissance to protect itself, that planes would be taking off from Oahu regularly and scouring the ocean hundreds of miles out. And of course, they would see us coming. It does seem remarkable that Yamamoto's fleets were able to travel for several days across the ocean, straight to the heart of US naval power, without being detected. So why didn't the Americans see them coming? The press in the United States was boasting about, you know, this fortress in the Pacific that was constantly on the prowl with uh, long-range reconnaissance. And uh, that was not true. Sure, there were reconnaissance flights, but they often uh, went only in one direction. There was nothing systematic. Even if you were doing reconnaissance, the odds of spotting 30 ships in the North Pacific uh, were extremely small. One of the reasons the Japanese took that route is that there's nothing out there. There are no islands. Hawaii is sort of the, the midpoint of the Pacific. Everything above it on the way to Alaska, it's empty. In fact, an army general called that area the vacant sea, that between the Hawaiian Islands and the coast of Alaska, I think, was 2,000 miles, and there was nothing out there. So the Japanese would not be sailing near or by anybody else. Uh, 
Whereas south of Hawaii, all the way down to Australia, there are hundreds of islands. And coming from that direction would have alerted lots of people. Even so, the Japanese assumed that they were going to be searched for because times were tense. A prudent Navy would be protecting itself by seeing who was out there. That wasn't happening. It sounds on the one hand like it was planned meticulously, even not throwing garbage over the side of the ships. But on the other hand, that it was a huge risk and they were also really, really lucky. Do you think it was a combination of the two or do you think that great planning or luck was more important? Yamamoto had estimated the chances of success at at 50-50. He used that expression. He thought that was a gamble worth taking. Just as an aside, Yamamoto's great passion in life was to gamble. He often thought that the ideal life for him would be to retire to Monaco on the south coast of France and just go to the gaming tables. He thought 50-50 were pretty good odds for success. And so I would use that as a benchmark to say that it was meticulous planning and luck that everything fell into place. And I think the principal luck he got was the poor assumptions by American commanders in Hawaii. They were not as sharp and clever and aware as he assumed they would be. And, or that he would have been. And so he was fortunate that they were looking in the wrong direction and had other ideas. With the benefit of hindsight, a historian could find themselves shouting at these American commanders at Pearl Harbor to just stop looking in the wrong direction, as Steve put it, and turn around, open their eyes, watch their backs. But considering the situation at the time, is this fair? Should the US have known better? I think one of the things that people think misunderstand about Pearl Harbor, because we so often refer to it as a surprise attack, I think people are surprised to know that the entire country expected that it would be at war with Japan in a matter of days. The atmosphere at that time was really tense, and there were all kinds of warnings that, well, we're going to be at war. In fact, on November 27th, Washington sent a a message to all military commands in the Pacific, which would include not only Hawaii, but Panama. The canal was under American control, and the Philippines also under American control. All those commands got a message on November 27th. Uh, the first nine words of which are some of the most memorable in American history. This is to be considered a war warning. So everyone knew there was a chance that war was going to break out. The surprise was where it did, meaning Hawaii. The naval commander in Hawaii, his name is Husband Kimmel, a great first name. I've never heard of anyone else ever named Husband, but he was. He was from Kentucky, had been in the Navy for four decades, was your uh, mind's uh, eye image of the modern major admiral. And he was aggressive. He was meticulous. He knew war was coming, but he figured that to attack Hawaii would be insane. Just logistically, it would be impossible. In other words, what Yamamoto thought was an asset, that is his going a long distance and surprising them, Kimmel regarded as an impossibility and that to search in the northern sections around Hawaii was just a futile waste of fuel and pilots and planes because you couldn't do that. Even though warnings continued to build that something big was happening, Kimmel thought that the advent of war meant that he gets to go to war. After four decades rising through the ranks of the Navy, 
This was his moment. And as soon as the war broke out, he was going to lead the Pacific fleet out and go after the Japanese. And that desire to be on the offensive negated his better sense of mission number one is, which was, you, you can't go sailing after anybody with nothing. You have to have ships to do it. And so your first priority is to make sure that you defend yourself. And according to Steve, Kimmel made another terrible misjudgment. Because arguably, the prospect of the Japanese launching a surprise attack shouldn't have been such a surprise after all. In 1904 and 1905, Japan and Russia went to war. The war began really with a surprise Japanese attack on the Russian Pacific Fleet. And the Russians were badly damaged. The Japanese won the war. So everyone knew that this was in their DNA, that they liked the idea of surprise. Kimmel knew it. He had been warned repeatedly about it and had even written notes about it to his own people. Well, we got to be aware of the Japanese penchant for surprise attacks. And then it's like everyone said, "Okay, we check that box. Let's forget it. We've done that. And I'll give you a good example of, of his mindset. Pearl Harbor is, as harbors go, shallow. At its deepest point, it's only about 45 feet. And that's enough for the draft of big ships. They, they draw a lot of water. But it's really not that deep as harbors go. Why is that significant? Well, everyone knew that probably the most lethal threat to a ship at that time was the airdropped torpedo. I guess submarine torpedoes too, but a submarine, a torpedo hits below the waterline and that immediately causes problems. I mean, a bomb hitting you on the deck doesn't sink you necessarily, but something that breaks through your hull, you're in trouble. And 45 feet is not or was not at the time deep enough for a plane to drop a torpedo and have the torpedo not bury itself in the mud of the harbor. Because a torpedo weighs like 2,000 pounds, and before it can actually begin its run underwater toward a ship, it'll dive quite deeply. Washington warned Kimmel that new tests indicate that while 45 feet in the past was kind of a, a guarantee you could not be torpedoed because the water's too shallow, it was no longer safe to assume that. Torpedoes were being redesigned so they didn't drop into the water as deeply. And the message went to Kimmel saying, specifically, you cannot assume that you're protected anymore. Kimmel read the message, so did all his people, and then they kind of said, okay, <laughs> and they forgot it. On December 7th, it was torpedoes that did the, by far the most damage to the American fleet. So Kimmel had a tendency to get bad information and reshape it to fit what he wanted to do, which was to sail out of the harbor in a grand march toward victory. He wasn't terribly focused on protecting himself, and in every message he interpreted that way. So Kimmel had been warned about certain scenarios, and these were scenarios that any admiral could have been aware of, from looking at the history books or from getting updates on the latest technological advances. But did the American camp have any insights beyond that? Had U.S. intelligence caught wind of what the Japanese might be up to at all? I think in terms of the uh, American ability to read Japanese messages, you have to separate them into military messages and diplomatic messages. The United States had broken the Japanese diplomatic code. What is the diplomatic code? It's what Tokyo's foreign ministry is saying and receiving from its diplomatic outposts around the world, particularly London, Berlin, uh, Washington, 
Paris. The United States, through an, uh, an achievement of monumental technological prowess, had managed to figure out how the Japanese diplomatic code worked. It really is a thing that, considering they didn't have computers then like we have today, was an amazing feat. So we had we had broken that. We had not broken their military codes. Military codes are what the Ministry of Defense or Navy or Army said to its people in the field and what they said back. Those codes remained largely opaque to the American military. And the distinction is important because Tokyo never told its diplomats, oh, we're going to attack Pearl Harbor and we're going to do it on December 7th. There would be no reason for them to know. Um, Why would you spread wide the secret that is the heart of your plan? So I don't think the Japanese ambassadors in Washington knew that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked. They certainly knew war was about to break out, but they didn't know where. They certainly didn't know it was going to be on December 7th. And so there was nothing in that diplomatic traffic that clearly told the Americans the place and the time of an attack. There was a strange exchange of messages in I want to say September, August of 1941, in which Tokyo asked its consulate in Honolulu to report on which ships are leaving, which ships have arrived, and where they are anchored in the harbor. Oh, and also you should divide the harbor into a grid so that you could tell us that a a battleship is in grid C2 or H5. This became known as the bomb plot message. It wasn't decoded until weeks later. It doesn't expressly say that the harbor is going to be attacked, and it certainly didn't give a date. And also, Japan was a meticulous gatherer of information, and they were asking similar information from their consulates in Seattle, in San Diego. And so it seemed more, here's the here are the Japanese again, gathering obscure numbers, and Kimmel, after the war or after the attack, argued that he was never told about this bomb plot message. It wasn't passed on to him. And he argued, there was the proof and you kept the proof from me. I think it's a stretch to say that a message that was sent in September would have kept them on alert in December more than you know, three months later. And given Kimmel's penchant for always reading information in the way that was least threatening, I'm not sure that he would have done anything about it. It would have said to him, well, yeah, they might want to know where our ships are, uh, simply because if they know they're in the port, that means they're not sailing off Singapore, potentially hampering our plans. So I think a lot of emphasis has been placed on the ability to read the diplomatic traffic. They were reading it and it didn't tell them anything about uh, what was about to happen in Hawaii. And this point about failures in the US intelligence system leads us onto something we have to address if we're talking about the secrecy surrounding the Pearl Harbor plans. There are, you know, conspiracies that Washington knew that there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor. They let it happen so that the people would be behind entering the war. How would you respond to those conspiracy theories? You know, it's funny. It's, this, is, this is like the vampire that well, you can't kill. The attack was such a shock. The people in, on the mainland were incredulous that this could happen because they had been told so often that the Japanese were strange little people who couldn't do good things. I think when you have a shock like that, and naturally it helps to have a conspiracy to explain it. 
The reasons I, I think that there was no conspiracy are overwhelming. And I'll just share a couple with you. There, this, can, this could be the subject of an entire episode. But I would throw out um, two things. Franklin Roosevelt's number one goal in December 1941 was to keep Britain afloat and fighting. Uh, he and Churchill had had uh, a mind meld, and the United States knew that it had to help Britain win, even if the United States wasn't in the war technically at that point. Allowing the Japanese to attack in the Pacific certainly didn't solve or help Roosevelt's aim of keeping Britain afloat. Why? Because if the United States went to war in the Pacific, it would immediately start withdrawing forces from the Atlantic in order to defend itself in the Pacific. That's number one. Number two, Britain was still relying on shipping from Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Singapore. The empire was still sustaining Britain to some degree. Going to war in the Pacific, the Japanese would immediately begin attacking those places and, and hampering Britain's own supply situation. Roosevelt would gain nothing and harm himself and the British and his country by just allowing an, an attack to happen. Let me offer the, the second reason why I don't think a conspiracy makes any sense. How would Roosevelt have known that the attack was coming? He didn't, didn't have an independent source of information, a hotline to some guy in Tokyo that Franklin could pick up the phone and say, oh, really, they're about to attack. He was on the end of a long chain of people who provided intelligence top naval aides, top army aides, all the way down to cryptographers who would be listening to the Japanese and putting messages down on paper so that this information would reach Roosevelt after it had been in the hands or the ears of dozens, if not hundreds of people in Washington. In the 80 years since the attack, none of those people ever came forward and said, oh my goodness, I saw a message that said December 7th, Pearl Harbor, and no one did anything about it. And that's one of the greatest conspiracies ever. And yet that never happened. There were nine investigations of Pearl Harbor in the United States, including a massive long congressional investigation that took months. No evidence was ever produced. No witness ever came forward and said, I remember I gave that message to the Pentagon and, and I know it got to the White House. I don't understand why they did nothing about it. So all these people went to their graves possessing the greatest secret in American history and not telling it. So just on a simple logic sense, how would Roosevelt have pulled this off and kept it a secret that he knew? He couldn't. It just defies human nature. So now we've put those conspiracy theories to bed, let's turn to the moments just before the attack. After meticulous Japanese planning had seen the fleet arrive undetected, there were a couple of very close calls that could have blown Japan's cover at the last moment. They executed the plan perfectly. Everything broke their way. They arrived undetected. They launched their planes exactly when they wanted to. They caught the fleet absolutely unawares, although there were certain Americans who did see a sense that something was about to happen aboard a, a destroyer that was patrolling. Two army privates at a radar station, they first knew something odd was happening. These two privates, Joseph Lockhart and George Elliott, were stationed at the Opana Mobile Radar Station when they saw something unusual on their board. A blip as Elliot later called it. They promptly called the sighting in to the base's information centre. 
they were sort of ignored. These two privates who called up and said, there are a lot of planes on their way here. We see them on radar. They're coming from a strange direction. What should we do about it? And they reported that to their headquarters and headquarters, which was manned by inexperienced, and unskilled people, said, ah, don't worry about it. It's probably American planes coming from California. And the destroyer captain, he was on patrol with his destroyer off the harbor. They spotted a Japanese midget submarine. These are like two-man submarines. And they knew that this was not right. And they opened fire on it and sent a message saying, we've seen and shot at a submarine off the mouth of the harbor, and we hit it, which they did. And it had long been thought that any attack on Hawaii would involve submarines. Yet here was the proof. And the message went up the chain of command and eventually got to Kimmel, who said, ah, that's interesting. I'll come to my office, but didn't sound any alarm, didn't put anybody on alert. 50 minutes later, the planes arrived overhead and it was too late. From talking to Steve in this episode, it's clear that there are a catalogue of US errors of judgment before Pearl Harbor. Those in command were not only made aware of the general threat posed by Japan in December 1941, but also neglected to take adequate precautions and ignored specific warning signs on the eve of the attack. So is it fair to say that the Americans should have seen a raid on Pearl Harbor coming, at least in time to mount some form of defensive strategy? The... um single greatest mistake that Kimmel made in Hawaii was the failure to conduct long-range aerial search. Washington thought he was. They had never asked if he was. He wasn't. He wanted to conserve his planes in order to conduct his grand offensive once the war started. There was ample evidence that the times had grown tense and a prudent commander protects his base. And he could have done it uh, in a systematic way, out to long distance from Oahu, but he didn't. It, and that was probably his single greatest mistake. And he argued that it, it was a waste of his planes. And there's no guarantee they would have found the fleet anyway. It's a big ocean. They might have missed it, but at least he would have said, I tried. But he didn't, he didn't try. And I think that's the facet of the attack that most people don't appreciate. It's just how tense the atmosphere was, how much everyone knew a war was about to break out, how the military was, in a sense, warned. Members of Congress had been told not to go home for Christmas holidays because we were probably going to be at war and they would have to officially declare it. That's how much people thought a war was about to happen. And the only surprise was where it, it happened. So if I was to leave some people with one thought, it would be, uh, this was a very narrow surprise. <laughs> Next week, we'll be turning to the raid itself. I'll be joined by historian Gavin Mortimer to chart how the attack unfolded and share stories of people involved. From Japanese pilots and US Navy personnel to army nurses and top commanders. Thanks for listening. This episode was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. My guest for today's episode was Steve Twomey, whose books include Countdown to Pearl Harbor, The Twelve Days to the Attack. That's available now, published in the UK by Simon & Schuster. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman, additional checks by Rob Blackmore.